Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. Throughout our history, mankind has been considering what becomes of us after death and what connection our living world has with other planes of existence. Nearly infinite terms have been applied to the concept, but a belief in souls or spirits is widespread across the civilizations that have come and gone through our shared history. Although it's an ancient consideration, it's not an archaic idea that died off in the Dark Ages. It's likely the majority of those listening right now identify with a present-day belief system that incorporates spiritualism. It's also equally likely that those of you listening live in a town that's passing a ghost story down through the generations. With that said, there's little to debate. For many of us, ghosts, spirits, hauntings, or whatever you want to call them, are a part of our daily lives. What many believe is what's being experienced is some type of an echo, something left behind by a prior occupant or by a traumatic event that occurred in the spaces we occupy. One such example is the many reports of a three-masted schooner that appears completely engulfed in flames sailing within the body of water that divides Nova Scotia from Prince Edward Island. These reports, which have spanned over 200 years, refer to an apparition so lifelike that witnesses have gone as far as to board rowboats in hopes of rescuing the crew fighting the flames on deck. However, the blazing phantom simply dissolves into mist leaving behind no wreckage nor debris. Could all these reports be related to a coincidence of light and reflection? Or do these waters serve as the setting for a long-forgotten tragedy and perhaps some process unknown to modern-day science has cursed the events to repeat themselves? Now, I know I covered a lot of ground without even introducing tonight's story, but I think it's time well spent. The story you're about to hear may sound unbelievable, but at the time of these events, both scientific and religious leaders were at a loss to explain an ongoing haunting that had been terrorizing a family in Amherst, Nova Scotia. Although the events we'll hear have occurred well over 100 years ago, to this day there's yet to be a universally accepted explanation for the bizarre poltergeist activity that centered around a then 18-year-old girl. Tonight we will hear the story of Esther Cox in the Great Amherst Mystery. Although Esther Cox in the Great Amherst Mystery is commonly considered one of the world's best documented poltergeist cases, here in Nova Scotia where the incredible events played out, it's surprisingly not well known. I'll be the first to admit, when you hear the story, some parts of it sound too fantastic. It's easy to pass it off as a hoax. But that's what makes the Great Amherst Mystery so incredible. In 1878, when these events played out, this didn't happen in isolation. Many reputable people, including the community's religious and scientific leaders, witnessed the phenomena, investigated it, and shared their stories in the local newspapers, books, and scientific journals. I obviously wasn't there and can't confirm exactly what did happen, but for a historical event like this, 
we're, we in the present day are fortunate to have several signed and notarized statements from eyewitnesses testifying to the truth and accuracy of their statements. To give nighttime listeners the most comprehensive and accurate telling of the story possible, I've based this episode's narrative on these notarized statements. Of course, I'm unable to include an eyewitness to this 139-year-old event in the episode, but I'm proud to say I've got the next best thing. In addition to my relying heavily on these sworn statements, I've also become well acquainted with a local man named Charlie Reindress. He's seen by many as the present-day keeper of the story to a large degree. Charlie has been involved in maintaining and sharing the story since before many of the people listening to this now were born. I'm proud to say Charlie made some time to talk with me, and excerpts of our talk will be used heavily in this episode. He'll introduce himself to you now. My name's Charlie Reindress, and I was born and raised in Amherst, Nova Scotia, so I've been aware of the Great Amherst Mystery my whole life. I've lived around the country, but currently I'm in Dorchester, New Brunswick. Worked primarily in theater for most of my life, but in the arts in general, I've done some film and TV work as well. Um, I'm a playwright. I've written a number of plays. Most recently, I wrote a biography of Rita McNeil. With the introductions out of the way, we'll begin the story with a brief description of the town in which the story is set. Personally, I've only driven through Amherst a handful of times, so I'll use an excerpt of my talk with Charlie to describe it in the present day. Amherst is a small town on uh, Canada's east coast. It's right on the border of uh, Nova Scotia and Brunswick. It's got a population of about 10,000 people. In the early 1900s, it was known as Busy Amherst. It was sort of a manufacturing hub, and they made everything there from shoes to pianos and coffins. Um, and because of its central location right in the middle of the Maritimes, it was great to, as a manufacturing place. Um, and you can still see evidence of that if you go to Amherst today. There's some gorgeous old homes. There's a street called Victoria Street and a couple others, Regent and Rupert, that just have these big, beautiful old homes that would have been built by very wealthy people about 100 years ago. But now it's a, a typical small town. It's a population has been pretty much the same for as long as I can remember. You know, it's a big hockey town. Their hockey is important to them, and there's a fairly vibrant arts community. So that's sort of, if you were to drop into Amherst today, that's what you'd see. His description is much more accurate than mine would have been. I would have just told you that Amherst feels like the perfect setting for a Stephen King novel. A small town with wonderful, century-old brick buildings scattered throughout but not much going on aside from good people living good lives. That said, there is one thing that makes Amherst truly unique and puts it on the world map of unexplained supernatural phenomenon. Amherst is kind of world famous in the world of the paranormal. If, you, if you're into that sort of thing, Amherst was home to a story that's become known as the Great Amherst Mystery, quite often featured in roundups of you know the greatest paranormal stories of all time, in particular um, it, it's been called one of the best documented poltergeist cases, cases of all time. So if you watch a lot of that kind of stuff or read those kind of books, the Amherst Mystery and the story of Esther Cox shows up quite often. As Charlie just mentioned, the Great Amherst Mystery is often considered among the world's most compelling cases of a haunting or poltergeist activity. One of the reasons this case is looked upon in such high regard is due to the wonderful written record that still exists outlining these bizarre events. 
a man moved to town and, and studied the story and then wrote a book about it at the time that it was happening in 1879. But not only did he write the book, but he had a number of well-known people from in the town, like doctors and you know lawyers and people like that, actually swore that they witnessed these things. And there were also contemporaneous accounts in the local local newspapers and eventually in newspapers across North America. People were covering the story. So the fact that it was witnessed by so many people and recorded at the time, it's not like 50 years later, people investigated and decided they'd publicize this story. It's been well known since it actually happened when it started back in 1878. Now that you have a background on the where, the when, and the whys of this story, let's begin the story of Esther Cox and the Great Amherst Mystery. Before we continue this episode, I want to take a brief break to tell you about a sponsor of the Nighttime Podcast. Listeners, are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click, so you can rest easy knowing your job is being seen by the right candidates. Then, ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting, so you receive the best possible matches. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And the easy-to-use ZipRecruiter dashboard lets you manage your hiring practice from start to finish, all in one place. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash night that's ziprecruiter.com slash night one more time to try it for free go to ziprecruiter.com slash night ziprecruiter the smartest way to hire You've already heard Charlie describe the present-day version of Amherst that the story is set in. Although this story takes place in a much older Amherst than the one Charlie knows, not an incredible amount has changed with the passage of time. The population, of course, is a little lower, and of course the historic buildings that the town is known for have yet to take on the weathered and worn look 130 Canadian winters gave them. As you'll hear shortly, the Great Amherst Mystery will eventually become a concern for the entire town, but initially, the events will begin in a small home located just outside of Amherst's downtown core. In the next clip, Charlie will describe the home and the extended family that occupies it. Esther Cox, who the story sort of centers around, she and her sister Jenny 
had moved in with their sister, Olive. They had an older sister, Olive. Olive was married to a man named Daniel Teed. And Esther and Jenny's mother had died years before. And when their father remarried and moved away, he left the girls behind at first with their grandmother. But then they moved in with their sister, Olive, and Olive's husband, Daniel. Olive and Daniel had two small kids as well at the time. It was a house. um, In the book by Walter Hubble, he refers to it as a cottage. But it was actually a two-story wooden frame house situated at 6 Princess Street in Amherst. Back then, of course, they would have had no electricity and they would have used an outhouse. And they didn't actually own the house. Um, and that becomes significant later in the story. They're actually renting it from someone else. So so they rented this home. It had, I think it was four bedrooms in total. So that's a lot of people to sleep in four bedrooms, but they somehow managed, I guess that's what people did back then. So, uh, yeah, and they were very, you know, church-going, typical family at the time. The men all worked and Olive took care of the house and Esther helped her out. And Jenny actually worked in a dress shop downtown. But that's how, that's that's the situation of the story as things begin. The great Amherst mystery is often referred to as a haunted house story, but it's in fact something altogether different. This is the story of a poltergeist or a noisy spirit. If you haven't seen the movie Poltergeist or researched parapsychology, a poltergeist differs from a haunted house in that a poltergeist is a type of supernatural phenomenon that surrounds a person rather than a place. As you'll hear shortly, a member of the Teed House Esther Cox will find herself at the center of one of the world's most notable poltergeist cases. Well, Esther would have been 18 when the story started, but it sounds like she was almost a little um, young for her age. She was a little bit awkward. Jenny was known as, you know, she, Jenny was her younger sister who was quite pretty and dated a lot. And Esther didn't really have boyfriends. And she was really drawn to the kids in, in the both in their house and in their community, in the neighborhood. She was known to play with younger kids a lot and stuff. So I think she was kind of, she described it physically as being quite plain looking, a little bit short and a little bit stout with curly, dark brown hair. And she spent a lot of her time playing with younger kids. So I think she was probably a little tiny bit backwards and certainly not worldly in terms of dating and stuff as the story starts. Esther's childhood would be largely uneventful and would lack any warning sign of the madness that she'll soon find herself in. As you just heard Charlie explain, she was somewhat immature, perhaps a little innocent, but just prior to the onset of the poltergeist, she would find herself in a very adult situation and would grow up fast. In the days prior to the events of this story, Esther and a local boy had been exchanging pleasantries and it appeared as though a crush was forming. When Esther agreed to allow him to take her out for a carriage ride, he would turn out to be a monster. Yeah, Esther had a crush on a guy named Bob McNeil who worked at the shoe factory with Daniel. He was known around town. He had a little bit of a bad reputation, so Olive wasn't crazy about her going out on a date with him. But he was supposed to show up one night, and he stood her up, and you know she was very upset. But then he did show up the next night, and he took her in his buggy, and they went for a ride out on the Tantramire Marshes. And as they got there, he pulled out a, a pistol, a, a revolver, and pointed it at her and threatened her and told her to get out of the buggy. And although in the book, which was written in the 1870s, they don't say exactly what he was planning to do, it's clear that he was if it was going to be he was going to rape her. And they said, you know, they say we, we dare not speak what, what it was that he was going to do. Um, anyway, Esther started crying, and then all of a sudden another buggy came along, and it's, he put the pistol away because another buggy came along and caught them and drove her back to town. And she went inside the house, refused to tell anybody what had happened, and just went straight to bed and cried herself to sleep for the next four nights. 
Although this haunting is known for violent and bizarre phenomenon that it will unleash upon Esther and, by association, the other occupants of the Teed House, it would actually start off quite gently. Exactly one week after the attack that shocked and broke her heart, the trouble would start in the bed she shares with her younger sister. Yeah, well, Esther had been crying herself to sleep for a while, and, and exactly one week after the attempted attack happened, she was already in bed, and her and Jenny shared a bed, you know, which certainly wasn't uncommon back then, but they shared a double bed, and so Jenny crawled in beside her, and Esther said, is today September 4th? And Jenny said, yes, it was. And she said, oh, it's been exactly a week. She observed that it had been a week and she was still quite upset about it. And so they laid in bed for about 10 or 15 minutes. And then all of a sudden, Esther jumped out of bed saying that there was a mouse under the blankets. So they lit the lamp and they couldn't find, they looked, couldn't find any sign of a mouse. And they looked around a bit. Eventually, Jenny saw what she thought was a mouse moving underneath the mattress cover in the straw. It would have been a, a mattress made of straw back then. Anyway, she could see it moving around. They couldn't see how it could get in or, you know, how it could get in in the first place, but they also couldn't see how to get it out. And Jenny was like, you know, don't worry about it. It's just a mouse. <laughs> now, I wouldn't crawl back in that bed, but apparently Jenny didn't think it was a big deal. So they decided they'd just crawl back in bed and they got in bed. They turned out the light. They listened for the mouse and they heard nothing else and they eventually just fell asleep. So, so in the beginning, it started really, you know, it's a fairly tiny event. They probably didn't think of it as particularly significant. Were it not for the gradual escalation of events that will soon occur, seeing a mouse in the days prior to modern homes would certainly not be a memorable event and far from worthy of discussion. This event would gain its importance only when viewed as the first sign of the poltergeist's slowly tightening grip on Esther. The next night after the mouse in the mattress incident, another strange event would occur in the girl's bedroom. The next night, they go to bed and they hear something moving under the bed this time. So Esther makes the connection that she thinks it's the mouse. And she's like, Jenny, you know, I, th- I think it's that mouse again. Let's get up and we're going to kill it. So they, uh, they get out of bed and they, they light the lamp. And they, there's a box under the bed that was filled with patchwork quilt pieces. And so they thought they could see something moving around in the box. So they pulled the box out into the middle of the floor, and all of a sudden, it jumped about a foot in the air on its own and fell over on its side. So they were kind of shocked, and they took the box, they straightened it up, they put it in the middle of the room, and then it jumped in the air again. So then they started screaming, and then Daniel came running into the room, their brother-in-law, and they told him that the box was jumping in the air. He laughed at them, told them they were crazy. He put the box back under the bed, told them to you know, basically be quiet, let them get some sleep. So the next morning, nobody believed them, so they just, you know, they didn't even talk about what had happened, and they kind of let it go again. As you see, things are starting to get weird. The box flying through the air, seemingly under its own control, was certainly puzzling. But Esther and her sister knew other members of the home would consider the story a childish figment of the imagination. Thus, they decided to keep the incident between them. As you'll hear Charlie explain, on the next night the third of the haunting, there'll be no question remaining. Whatever was about to begin terrorizing the family was now ready to give the first glimpse of its power. On night three, around 8.30 in the evening, Esther said she wasn't feeling well. She felt like she had a little bit of a fever. So Olive and Jenny told her she should just go to bed. So she went to bed and she was, uh, you know, she was there for a while and Jenny came to bed finally about 10 o'clock. 
And Jenny'd been in bed for maybe 15 minutes or so. And all of a sudden, Esther jumped up out of bed, ran to the center of the room, and she was standing there. She grabbed the back of a wooden chair and she said, you know, she started screaming, my God, you know, what's wrong? I'm dying. I'm dying. So Jenny woke up thinking that maybe Esther had had a nightmare or something. But then she saw Esther standing there in the middle of the room. Her hair was standing on end. Her face was red as blood. And her eyes looked like they were going to pop out of their sockets. So Jenny yelled for some help, and Daniel and Olive and the two brother-in-laws all came into the room. And they thought she was going crazy or something, because there she was standing in the middle of the room saying that you know she was on fire. And uh, all of a sudden, she the color started to drain from her face, and she started to get weak. And then she couldn't even make it back to the bed. They had to help her back to the bed. And then she, she sat there for a few minutes, kind of almost like she was in a trance or something. And so they got her back in bed under the covers, and she she was yelling, I'm swelling up, and I'm going to burst. And Daniel looked at her, and he said, look, her hands really are, like, they're swelling up. And they say she was almost double the normal size, and, and she was really hot to touch, apparently. It was like she was on fire, and she was grinding her teeth. And then all of a sudden, there was this loud bang, like thunder, that was heard in the room. Olive thought the house had actually been hit by by lightning. So she looked at the window and it was a clear night and they knew that that's what, you know, that it wasn't lightning that had hit the house. All of a sudden they heard three loud, really loud bangs, but they sounded like they were coming from underneath the bed. So they heard these three bangs again. And then all of a sudden Esther just stopped whatever, you know, was taking over her body, went away and she just went back to normal and sank into a, a, a calm sleep. So the uh, one of them, I think it was Daniel, um, then went to you know get the wooden chair that was in the middle of the room that she'd been gripping, and he noticed that she'd been gripping it so hard she'd left fingernail marks in the back of the chair. The next morning, Esther woke up feeling normal for the most part. Although still weak and with little appetite, with the bizarre night behind them, the members of the house kept a keen eye on Esther but still weren't overly concerned. Their original explanation was that an intense fever came and went during the course of the night, and since Esther seemed fine now, they didn't need to seek any help. As far as the thundering blasts that seemed to originate from below her bed, that they couldn't explain, and they still can't. When Esther retired to bed that evening, there was certainly an uneasy feeling in the room, but the night was completely uneventful. In fact, the next four nights and days would go by without any signs of supernatural activity. Perhaps the energy expelled in the blast served as a sort of exhaust, temporarily relieving whatever evil force existed near Esther. I say temporary because after four nights of peace, the haunting returned and showed the members of the Teed House it could do more than just make Esther swell up. On the eighth night, there'd been a few nights of quiet, and then all of a sudden, Esther was laying in bed. She started to swell again, but she didn't. She didn't manage to get in the bed. She wasn't, you know, standing in the middle of the room this time. But all of a sudden, the blankets flew off the bed and flew over into the corner, into a corner of the room. So Esther, I'm sure, was screaming. Jenny actually fainted. The family rushed into rushed into the room, and they had no idea what to do. They got Jenny back into bed. They took the blankets, put them back over the sisters, and all of a sudden they flew off and off into a corner of the room again. The others sat around the edge of the bed and had to sit on the bed in order to hold the blankets in place. So they did this for a while, and then all of a sudden the uh, there were these loud reports heard again, and then the whole you know the whole room shook, and then Esther, who'd been swollen up, 
went back to her normal appearance and everything calmed down and she fell asleep again and the blankets weren't flying around the room anymore. So it went from affecting Esther physically to physical things actually being thrown around the room. Again, the loud blasts sounded just as the haunting ended its torture of Esther. But now there was no denying it. There was something really unusual and dangerous happening in the house. Into the morning hours, Esther's sister kept her comfortable with the aid of a cool, damp cloth on her head, but it was obvious she needed something far stronger than that. The very next day, the family contacted a local doctor and requested immediate assistance. As you'll hear Charlie describe in the next clip, a well-respected local physician will respond to the request for help, but the spectacle he will witness is far beyond the abilities of medical science. So Daniel decides that, um, you know, they, they've kind of had enough of this, but, you know, it's been going on for quite a while and it keeps interrupting their sleep and they, they don't understand what's happening. So he goes to see a local doctor, Dr. Kareet. Now, when Dan told him what had happened, he just laughed at him and he said, look, I, I'll come over in the evening and I'll stay till one in the morning if I have to. But, you know, I'm sure none of this nonsense is going to happen while I'm there. So he decides he'll come over that night, and um, the doctor comes in around 10 o'clock at night, and he says hello to everybody, and, you know, Esther hadn't had any attacks, so he checks her over, you know, checks her pulse and everything, and he did say that, it, you know, it looked like she had been suffering from some sort of nervous excitement or had a shock of some kind. He could tell that, you know, she wasn't completely healthy and normal, I guess, but then just as he said this, there was a, the pillow that was under her head flew out from under her head, it's all except for one corner, and sort of stood out in the middle, <laughs> like floated in the air, and then went right back underneath her head again. And so the doctor was kind of in shock. All of it, He said, you know, did everybody see that? And John Teed was in the room, and he said, yes, I saw it. So the doctor was standing there stunned at this point because he actually didn't believe he would see these things. And then all of a sudden the banging started. And so he heard these loud bangs. It sounded like they were coming from under the bed. The doctor looked. He couldn't see anything. All of a sudden, then the bedclothes uh, flew off the bed and back into the corner of the, of the room as they had done the night before. And then all of a sudden, um, they heard this scraping on the wall. This sharp instrument was carving into the wall. And they supposedly, and the, the doctor claims this happened as well, stood there while some unknown force carved into the wall the phrase, Esther Cox, you are mine to kill. So the doctor, you know, was amazed by all of this. And, you know, stuff like this went on for a couple hours. There were bangings and things were flying around the room. And the doctor said he'd call back in the morning to see what was going on and maybe give Esther something to calm her nerves. But he had no idea what was happening. Despite witnessing the bizarre phenomenon himself, Dr. Kareed agrees to continue his attempt to treat Esther. As Charlie described, his initial plan was to treat what he believed to be symptoms of nervous anxiety. As far as what he thought of the phantom threat that he witnessed being carved into the wall, sadly that detail has been lost to history. Over the course of the roughly five weeks that Esther was under the doctor's care, there were little to no improvements in her condition. The sedatives were enough to help Esther find sleep and numb the shock of what was happening, but not unsurprisingly, the treatment would not affect the haunting, which continued during the time she was under his care. I won't get into the various anomalous occurrences, but I will outline the key events that unfolded while Esther was under Dr. Karit's care. One important development would play out late one evening, 
while the doctor sat at Esther's bedside, while in a trance-like state, she would finally break the silence surrounding the attempted assault that occurred just prior to the haunting's onset, an event many believe set off the activity. One night she was having one of these fits where, you know, her body was swelling up and stuff. And all of a sudden, it was like she'd gone into a trance and she was talking and she was recounting everything that had happened with Bob McNeil. So she related the whole story back to them, not as though she was talking to them, but as though she was telling someone the story. And then she came out of the trance and, you know, they asked her about it and she confirmed that, yes, you know, these things had happened, but she didn't even remember what she had told them. So, and, and the doctor, like, as you say, he was there for a while and he tried giving her sedatives and all kinds of different things to try to calm her down and nothing seemed to work. You know, the stuff continued to fly around the room and she continued to have the fits and he couldn't identify what could possibly be wrong with her. Another important development would occur during Esther's time under Dr. Karit's care. Purely by chance, it would be discovered that, at least in a rudimentary way, the haunting was willing and able to communicate with those in its presence. Although the haunting didn't outline its intentions, it did communicate well enough to provide a direct threat to Esther. A number of things that happened that led the family to believe that the ghosts were aware of what they were actually saying and doing. And Jenny was talking to Dr. Kareet and said to him, you know, I get this feel, we have a feeling that whatever is doing this can understand us and maybe even see us. And as soon as she said that, there were three loud bangs, like, like something knocked three times. And then Daniel said, well, why don't you ask if it can hear us? And so the doctor said, you know, can you hear what we say? And again, there were three bangs. And so they actually started to ask the ghosts questions and questions as well where the ghost or, or I say the ghost, but the poltergeist, the spirit, whatever it was that was making these noises, um, they decided they would ask it questions too, like where it would be responsible for counting, for instance. So Daniel said, if you can see and hear us, tell us how many people are in the room. And there were five bangs and there were five people in the room. And so then they started reg- to regularly communicate with the ghosts. It would identify how many coins someone had in their pocket and the date on a coin. And, and it would also answer yes and no for certain questions they would ask. And at one point, the doctor asked, do you intend to kill Esther Cox? And it said yes. It's now been over a month since the haunting began its assault on Esther and those near her. What initially started off in and under Esther's bed has slowly expanded to the entirety of the house with the phenomena occurring at any time of day now. You heard the occasional blasts mentioned in some prior clips. These would eventually become so loud and so frequent that the neighbors become concerned. Ultimately, that is what leads to the community of Amherst learning about what's happening in the Teed House. In the next clip, Charlie will describe the community's reaction, as well as the opinions of some of the religious leaders who would gain an interest in the haunting after reading about it in local newspapers. It, because the, yeah, this thing, whatever it was, was making such loud noises, it, it sometimes sounded like the noises were coming from outside the house, like they were on the roof. So neighbors became aware that there were strange things going on in the house because the, the stuff didn't, after a while, it didn't only happen at night. It was happening all day. So people on the street, as they passed by, would hear bangings and stuff. So, so people started to talk about what was happening, and it started to appear in the local paper. So um, a couple different ministers became, a religious people became interested. They basically didn't believe it because they'd read it in the newspaper, and they thought they'd show up and find out 
that there was nothing going on. But one minister, a Baptist minister named Dr. Clay, he actually showed up and he asked questions and the ghost knocked and, uh, and banged in response. And then once people realized that the minister were, you know, actually taking this seriously, more and more people started dropping by the house. You know, nowadays they didn't have TV or movies back then. So their entertainment was probably let's go by, you know, Daniel Teed's house and see what's going on with Esther. But people would, you know, the house would be full sometimes of people just coming to see if they would see the strange phenomena, you know, different things were happening. Like, you know, they'd go to the basement and potatoes would fly at their head or Esther would set a bucket of water on the kitchen table and it would start to boil on its own. So, so things were pretty crazy. There was another minister who said that he thought Esther was behind all of it and that if a strong rawhide whip were applied to her backside, the ghost would stop soon enough. So there were, you know, the, the leaders in the town, some actually blamed Esther for faking all of this and somehow tricking people. And then there were other people who believed that there was something going on. With the attention of both the religious community and the local newspapers, the story of Esther Cox and the Great Amherst Mystery quickly spreads around the globe. The Teed House and the broader town of Amherst now become an interest to the growing number of parapsychologists who are trying to explain what the day's scientists were unable to. As it would turn out, while the tensions surrounding the haunting grew, Esther's life would face another threat. This one, medical science was able to explain. In December of 1878, just three months after all this started, Esther was overcome by a severe case of diphtheria, a sometimes fatal infection. Oddly, during the time Esther was incapacitated by sickness, she received nearly total relief from the haunting. There was a roughly four-week period where Esther recovered from the infection, two weeks of which she spent outside the Teed House with family in nearby New Brunswick. Given that there was virtually no sign of the haunting during this period, doubters often see this as evidence that Esther was involved in a hoax. Now with that said, almost as soon as Esther returned to the Teed House, the haunting would reignite itself and again increase its capabilities of harm. We've gone through all these different things. Well, first it's Esther's body and then things flying around the room. And then it gets to the point where, but Esther actually claims she can hear voices talking to her. She hears, she actually can communicate with the, the ghost and she'll say, the ghost just told me. But she told Jenny one night that a ghost said to her he was going to set the, the house on fire. Now, by this point, Dr. Clay, who was one of the one of the ministers, he thought that maybe it was electricity that was causing all this. So Dan said to him, you know, well, electricity isn't going to set the house on fire unless it's, you know, lightning or something. And then all of a sudden, while they're talking about this, a lit match fell from the ceiling and it landed on the bed. And Jenny put it out right away. And then over the next 10 minutes, about eight or 10 more matches fell from the ceiling and the family managed to get them all out. But now it's getting scary because they were scared that the ghosts were not only, you know, attacking Esther, but they were actually going to burn the whole house down. From this point on, the haunting will combine fire with the other forces it uses to inflict terror upon Esther. One such example of this dangerous new combination of phenomenon would happen late one night when a dress hung on the back of Esther's bedroom door would miraculously fly across her room, ending up balled up in the corner against the wall and immediately burst into flames. As members of the Teed House began collecting water to extinguish the flames, the blasting would return and shake the floor beneath their feet, seemingly as an attempt to disrupt their firefighting efforts. Charlie shared another story when we spoke. In this case, 
the haunting almost makes good on its threat to burn the house down. Olive and Esther were in the kitchen one day, and you know Esther was there with Olive, so it was clear she didn't start start a fire or anything. And then all of a sudden, I saw smoke coming from the cellar. So Esther, you know, Esther noticed it first, and Olive and Esther both jumped up and they ran down to the basement, and they noticed that there was a box of shavings that had caught on fire somehow. It was a small basement. It was starting to fill with smoke, and she was sure the whole house was going to burn up. So she told Esther, she was like, let's run outside and scream fire, which they did. They thought, you know, some neighbors might come and help them. But apparently there was a man walking down the street, someone they didn't know. He raced into the house. He grabbed a mat from the dining room, went downstairs, put it over top of the barrel, put the fire out, and before they could even thank him, disappeared. And no one ever saw him again, which I find it's kind of an interesting little side note to the story. I have no idea you know, how he's really connected, but it was a stranger who, you know, in a small town like that, everyone would have known everyone. But this man just happened to randomly show up in the street and put the fire out and then disappear. As news of the fire spread, the community becomes increasingly concerned about the true threat of property damage related to Esther and this haunting. Considering the teed house Esther resided in was in downtown Amherst, the fear was that a blaze of the house could quickly spread to the surrounding structures. So to reduce this real risk, Esther tries spending some time away from the house. A local man named John White agreed to help the family by letting Esther stay at his home on the outskirts of Amherst for a period of time. He also agrees to keep her in his company during the day at the small restaurant he runs. But as things turned out, Esther's stay with John would be cut short after a violent attack against her in the restaurant. Yeah, so while she was working at the saloon, John's son at one point, Freddie I think was his name, was whittling with a little penknife. And apparently the penknife flew out of his hand and stabbed Esther in her back. And the little boy went and pulled his knife out of Esther's back folded it up, put it in his pocket so it wouldn't do it again, and apparently it somehow got out of his pocket and flew back into the hole in Esther's back. I know this all sounds absolutely crazy, but these are things that happened in the saloon and were witnessed by a number of people, which people swore they hadn't seen some of these things happen. With the hauntings surrounding Esther too much for John White to handle, Esther would return again to the Teed House, but coinciding with her return would be the entry to another major player in this story. It's at this point that Walter Hubble, the American actor turned paranormal investigator turned author, would take up temporary residency in the Teed House. So Walter Hubble was an actor um, based in New England, down in the United States. And so Walter Hubble had read about this case because by now it was being printed in newspapers in the United States as well. And he had some, um, he had an interest in the spiritualist movement, which was pretty popular at the, in the you know, the end of the uh, 19th century, so the late 1800s. And he had a friend who was being duped by this woman who kept having seances and telling the woman that she was talking to her mother. And anyway, he felt that it was all a fake, and, and he had exposed some of these things as fake. So when he heard about the Amherst mystery, he knew he was going to be touring to Amherst. So he contacted the family and said, you know, could I board with you for a few days? And his idea was that he was going to expose the story as a fake and write a book about it. And, you know, probably his goal was I can make some money off exposing what's going really going on here. But when he arrived in town, he walked in the door and he set his umbrella down and his umbrella immediately flew across the room. And then he laid on the couch a, a little while later and a paperweight came flying at his head. And, you know, chairs would fall over in the room, you know, while he, he had an eye on Esther and all of a sudden he'd see a chair fall over and stuff. So he actually, as soon as he got to the house, 
he began to witness some of these things, and he eventually became convinced that it was all real. So instead of the book he was going to write exposing it as a fraud, he wrote a book that detailed the story, um, gave, and which is why to this day we have this account of it that's very detailed compared to many poltergeist stories from you know the 19th century. During Hubble's time in the home, he would bear witness to a cocktail of the phenomenon you've heard described during this episode. I won't go into the details of his experiences with Esther, as he shares it all in the two books he wrote about Esther Cox and the Great Amherst Mystery. As you'll hear next, his time in the home would end just as Esther's did. You heard much earlier in the episode that the Teeds were renting the wood frame home where the majority of the phenomenon played out. The owner of the house finally had enough of the news coverage, the onlookers, and most of all, the fires. That, near the end of his visit, again, the fires started, and they, because it wasn't even their home, the landlord came to them and said, she can't stay in this house because, you know, furniture was flying around. I'm sure the walls were getting beat up. There was the threat of fire. They were worried for their safety. The landlord was worried about his house. So she went to stay with a family outside of town called the town called the Van Ambergs. Um, and Walter left town shortly after that. He was there. I think he arrived in March of 1879. So he left when she was staying with this family on the outskirts of town and, you know, went, out, went back to New England or wherever he was from. And that's where he wrote the book. As Hubble concentrates on writing his book back in New England, Esther is hoping for a fresh start at her new home with the Van Ambergs. As you've likely guessed, the haunting follows her. The tricks it would pull this time will lead to investigation by local law enforcement. It turns out they're not believers in paranormal. She stayed with the Van Ambergs and nothing seemed to happen at first. And then she said that the ghosts were actually, she would leave the Van Ambergs and go visit another family. And they were missing some stuff. And they thought that maybe Esther had stolen it because it showed up at the Van Ambergs house. She claimed the ghost had stolen these things and hid them at the Van Ambergs. Then another day, she was out in the barn, and she said the ghost, as he had done at their house, said he was going to set it on fire, which he did. And the, the barn ended up burning to the ground. Esther was charged with arson, and she was actually found guilty of arson and was sentenced to four months in jail. But she was released after one month, you know, basically because of good behavior or whatever. But she did eventually go to jail for for burning a barn to the ground, which she claimed her spirits or ghosts or poltergeists, whatever, had, had actually set the barn on fire. Sadly, little is known about Esther's brief prison stint. I'd be very interested to hear what phenomenon occurred behind bars. But it's always been said that relief from the supernatural torment would come just upon her release from prison. Charlie will explain that next. So when Esther, uh, shortly after Esther got out of jail, she went to see a First Nations medicine man who uh, performed a sort of exorcism to get rid of the spirit. She also around this time fell in love and got married and nothing ever happened again. Now, whether it was the exorcism that drove it away or the fact that she got married, you know, it's unclear, but the ghost never bothered her again. And she ended up moving away. She, uh, her first husband died. She married another man from the United, United States and settled in Brockton, Massachusetts, where she died at the age of 52 of natural causes. But for the rest of her life, she refused to talk about the story. I've always wondered, anyone who studies this sort of thing a lot knows that, you know, poltergeist activity quite often happens around, for some reason, a young woman who's going through puberty, who's going through this sexual awakening. And I find it interesting. The whole story started with an attempted rape, but then once she was married, and, you know, she didn't have that sexual confusion or, or whatever it was that she experienced. 
the ghost if things went away. So whether it was in her head and she was controlling it in some way, I don't. Anyway, we can talk about theories later. But uh, so I've always found it interesting that this sort of the fact that she got married happened around the same time as visiting the medicine man. Between those two things, the ghost left and never came back. If you're anything like me, you're probably questioning the majority of the strange occurrences that affected Esther during this poltergeist-style haunting. To me, the story seems too strange to be true. But what of the written record that exists? Perhaps there is some exaggeration, but at the core of it, the story seems true. As far as what forces are behind the haunting, there's no widely accepted explanation. In the next clip, Charlie will share some of the most commonly discussed explanations. Listen to it with an open mind. One of them could be correct. So there were a number of theories proposed at the time and certainly since then. Um, I think I mentioned a little while ago that there was a minister who thought that it was electricity. People didn't really understand electricity at that time, and they thought maybe somehow her body was acting like a magnet and she was somehow attracting objects or sending objects flying because of that. Um, there were also people that said, you know, it was mesmerism, that basically she was hypnotizing all the people around her to imagine that these things were happening. Um, Walter Hubble has a quite a complicated theory where he talked about something called vital magnetism. His theory was that Bob McNeil had this evil spirit within him, but when he scared Esther so bad, she was so frightened that she was weakened and the evil spirit was able to get into her, and it stayed there until the Indian medicine man drove it out. So he felt that it was Esther had lost some of her vital magnetism through the through the the fear of being attacked, and so another spirit was able to move inside her body. Um, now, if you read the most recent book written about the case, Haunted Girl, by Barb Thompson and Laurie Glenn Norris, I believe it's been about five years since I read the book, but I, I think their central thesis was basically that there wasn't really anything going on, and Esther was tricking people with some stuff, but there was also kind of a mass hysteria that, you know, every everything that happened, people attributed it to Esther and imagined things that didn't happen, and that it got exaggerated, and eventually people just took took advantage of Esther. On the other hand, if you read um, reports from people who believe in the paranormal, they are, it's um, most often referred to as recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis. So basically, she had psychokinesis, the ability to move things with her mind, but it was recurrent and spontaneous, so it ha happened repeatedly, and she didn't really have any control over it. And I guess if you, Stephen King's movie, um, Carrie, in the, when she gets upset, things fly around the room. She's not even really aware she's doing it. We've now reached the end of the commonly told version of Esther's story, believe it or not. Before Charlie and I ended our phone call, we did briefly discuss how this spectacular case is looked back upon by the current occupants of Amherst. Yeah, it's funny. People are aware of the story in Amherst for sure. And I don't think people are aware quite how widely known it is. Like I, because they're from Amherst, it's their story, but I don't think they realize that it's got world renown. So I, that's been interesting for me in talking to people about that. So it's there in a small way. I think over the next few years, it's, that's probably going to increase. Particularly, there seems to be a greater interest in the paranormal right now. But in Amherst, you can you can stop an awful lot of people. You know, an awful lot of people. You stop on the street, you'll get a story about Esther Cox and her ghosts and stuff. With that, we'll conclude this episode of the Nighttime Podcast. I want to thank Charlie Reindress for taking the time to share such a bizarre series of events with me. And I also want to thank you, Charlie, for your great work in helping Esther's story become more well-known in Amherst. 
I'm going to play one last clip from my talk with him. In this clip, he'll discuss his project Esterfest, a festival celebrating this story that will run for its first time during the week this episode is released. Like what they did with the witch trials in Salem, Massachusetts, I really think Amherst could become like the paranormal capital of Canada because there isn't a paranormal capital of Canada right now. So we we've, uh, we had a number of meetings last year and I, I did a report for the town and we came up with tons of ideas, everything from, uh, you know, we'd love to have a walking tour of where Esther's you know, start where Esther's house was and where she went on trial and where she worked and stuff. And we're talking about doing something called Esther Fest. So it'd be like a, a few days to a week-long celebration of the paranormal. And we would have palm readers and tarot card readers and we'd have guest lecturers and book signings. Uh, the play that I wrote, we would love to do that. And, you know, who knows, somewhere down the road, we might be able to recreate the house as like a museum to Esther. If you go to Salem, it's amazing the number of different buildings that are just committed to this story. You know, the witch's house and the house where the trial, you know, they have another one that looks like a courthouse where the trial happened. And so we'd like to do some of those kinds of things and get it get to the point where Amherst is known as home of the great Amherst mystery. So that's it's sort of a branding for the town. But also, I think it could be a lot of fun because there isn't, as I say, there, Canada doesn't necessarily have a paranormal capital right now. And with this story, I think Amherst should claim it. If you'd like to learn more about Esther Cox and the Great Amherst Mystery, I've added a link to a PDF copy of one of Walter Hubble's books that he wrote about his time living with her. I want to thank you for listening to this episode. And to everyone out there, I hope you have a happy Halloween. If you're interested in hearing more content, please check out the Nighttime Patron Group. For for $1 a month, you can support the show and access supporter-exclusive bonus content. You can join by visiting patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. On behalf of myself and the show's listeners, I'd like to thank the continued support of the show's current patrons and welcome the newest members to the group. Chastity, Janice, Louise, Matt, and the great folks behind the Minds of Madness podcast. Without you all, the production of this show would be impossible. For anyone else who would like to support the show but's unable to do so financially, you can help by telling your friends about it and by leaving a positive review for nighttime on Apple Podcasts or the equivalent. If any of you listening want to stay up to date with my activities in and out of the show, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I use the handle at NighttimePod. If you have a story idea or feedback on the show, I'd love to hear from you at NighttimePodcast at gmail.com. So with that said, keep looking around and let me know if you see anything weird. The other thing I find interesting that nobody has ever talked about is it started in September and it ended in June. That's exactly nine months apart. And she was swelling up to twice her normal size and she went away and stayed with a family out of town. I'm like, did she get pregnant and go away and have the baby? Was that part of it? Like, I've always wondered if there's something there too. I've never, that's a completely wild theory. I didn't even use that in my play, but there's part of me that's always wondered about that. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte.